y'all catch that last stanza? O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. That is an excellent, excellent summary of our passage this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So uh, my, my son is running cross country. I've never been to a cross country meet until uh, this year. As you can see, I'm not much of a cross country runner myself. Uh, but now all of a sudden I'm taking interest in all things running, or at least some things running, or a couple of things running. At least one thing is running that I'm taking an interest in. Uh, but anyway, I, I saw yesterday, we were uh, I think it came up at the, at the meet, that somebody broke the two-hour barrier for a marathon. So I think it was like like a minute and 59, Ryan, you're, you're nodding your head back there. Is that what it was? Do you, you remember a minute and 59 seconds? Hour, 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 59 seconds. Hour, 40 seconds. all the jargon, I don't understand all the jargon, uh, right, an hour, hour and 49 seconds, uh, which is, an hour, 59, 59 minutes. minutes, so he was 20 seconds away. He went really fast, in less than two hours, so, um, all that to say, I was reading about it, and there's a hashtag no human is limited. So that's what's going around. No human is limited. I think that's like his thing. And um, that is the opposite of what we're going to learn about today. All right. And it was just so interesting to me to see that this morning in contrast with everything I have been studying uh, all week long in relation to 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. So let me read it. It's a short passage, only four verses. Uh, possibly one of the most profound passages in the scripture, all right? So let's begin in verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So this is one of the great passages in the Bible regarding the topic of suffering. And this is, this is not a topic that can be addressed lightly. Uh, it, it should not be addressed by those who have never experienced suffering. It should not be addressed by those who don't understand suffering. And thankfully, Paul is a man who can speak out of great suffering and great weakness. You could say this, this is a man with a PhD in suffering. And it is absolutely true that those who have been used by God most greatly have suffered the most. Suffering is the training ground of faith. It is the tool God uses to teach us to rely on him. That is throughout the scriptures. James 1, 2, and 3 probably sums it up better than any other passage. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Uh, hundreds of years ago, they used to say that a pastor's job was to help his flock die well. 
And I would say you could add to that, uh, part of my job is to help us all suffer well and for the glory of Jesus Christ. All scripture is, is profitable. All scripture is helpful. But as I've studied this passage this week, I, I have genuinely felt like that we are going to be walking on holy ground. And if you will spend time after we're done, make some notes, make some mental notes, go, go grab this, uh, this sermon and listen to it. I think you will be able to find treasure here for years and years and years to come as you understand this passage better and better. This is a remarkable passage because uh, like Psalm 73 that we looked at not too long ago, this is a godly man's perspective on suffering. So this is Paul. Y'all, truly godly people don't want to talk about themselves, but Paul has been forced into talking about these things. As we've been walking through the end of of 2 Corinthians here, we've seen him. I don't want to boast. I, I feel like a fool. I can't believe I have to talk like this. But because of the suffering that he's been experiencing in Corinth, he has to come out and he has to talk about these things. And so you could actually say that God used the suffering of Paul and the accusations at Corinth in an amazing way. Because of that suffering, we have this passage today because it forced Paul to write it down. And we have this instruction. All right, so here's the main point. I want to give you this this morning, and then we're going to walk through the passage, and then we'll come back to this, okay? But this is the main point. This is, this is the nugget that I would ask you to keep in your mind as we go along here. God regards our humility as more important than our comfort, okay? Just file that away as we go through. God regards our humility to be more important than our comfort. He wants to teach us to rely on him and he will use any means necessary to accomplish that goal. And so as I've been preparing this week, I am constantly aware that there are those among us who have suffered and there are those among us who are suffering right now. And I know it may not be easy for you to hear that God's ultimate goal for you Uh, is that there may not be relief right now for what you're going through. And I would only ask you to just bear with me as we continue to move through this passage and to understand that what Paul is saying is that there are greater things than relief. There are greater things than relief, all right? And so for others of you, maybe, who are in a a time of of contentment, you're, you're generally well taken care of right now, I hope this passage that you'll File it away in a special place because you're going to need it sooner or later. And I am a firm believer that if you are a faithful believer, uh, you will need to prepare for suffering because it will come. So let's just take a minute. Let's ask for grace as we walk through this passage and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll dig in. Father, I would just ask, this is, a, this is a, a passage that is so revolutionary to how we think, especially how we think as Americans. And so, God, I would ask you by your grace to just help us to be able to get above um, how we normally think and to be able to see things from your perspective, to see suffering, to see weakness from your perspective, and that we would be able, by your grace, to understand the things that you have for us here. So, God, may our church benefit both now and in the future from these words from the Apostle Paul written so many years ago, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, I got six R's this morning. I actually alliterated this thing, so maybe that'll help you, uh, help you keep it in mind as you go along here. First of all, the risk. All right, what is the risk? 
What's at risk here? Paul says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. So, so what did Paul see? And we looked at this last week. He was taken up to the third heaven, up to paradise. We talked about how that he went to the very center of heaven. He went to the place where God was. And, and he says that I saw things that I can't describe, and I saw things that I am not allowed to tell. Fourteen years prior, he saw all these things. And it, in, a, in a world that he was living in where there were all these false apostles and they were boasting about their dreams and visions and revelations, Paul says, I had the vision to beat all visions. I went straight to heaven and I saw things there. And he doesn't tell us what he saw, but all we know is what he saw made him certain that Christ was worth sacrificing everything for. All right? So God gave him that vision. So what was the risk? This vision was so great that there was a risk that Paul would become proud. And he says this twice in verse 7. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited. The, the New American Standard translates that, to keep me from exalting myself. So whatever Paul saw, it was so great that he was at great risk of exalting himself. That's right. So before we go any further, I need you to understand, because you're not going to buy this passage if you don't understand this. I need you to, to believe with me that self-exalting pride is a bad thing. If you don't think self-exalting pride is a bad thing, then you're going to be like, this is, this is not helpful. Okay? So we cannot take this for granted, because we live in a day when pride is a virtue, not a vice. So if you're not on the same page here, Scripture is filled with warnings. Proverbs 16, 5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. He will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16, 18. Just a few verses later. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. James 4, 6. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you, but it sounds really bad to be in a place that God would oppose me. And so if I am proud, that's what the scripture says is the case. And this is only a tiny fraction of the warnings that are all over the scripture. Anyone who doesn't believe that pride is a deadly sin is a fool. To exalt oneself is an abomination. Pride was the sin that brought Satan out of heaven. And one day, the Antichrist is described like this. The one who's going to come and set himself up in opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, he says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. So, all that to say, if you believe pride is a virtue... This is not going to make sense to you, what we're about to look at here. So because of the greatness of this vision, Paul was in great danger. It's an amazing thought. God gives him this vision, but he's in great danger of pride, and therefore, to keep him from exalting himself, God gives him the thorn in the flesh. So we see the risk, and then we see the rescue. Verse 7b, A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So here's the kicker. The thorn in the flesh is a means of rescue for Paul. It's to keep him from danger. The danger is not the thorn. The danger is that Paul would become conceited. 
All right, so let's just break this down right here. A thorn was given to me in the flesh. It is a constant, painful reminder of his weakness. By the way, the word thorn here could also be translated stake. And all I take that to mean is this was not just a splinter. You know, the metaphor is not that Paul has a splinter in his finger. He has a sharp pain jabbing him in the flesh. He is constantly being jabbed and he is experiencing real pain. We'll see that this thorn in the flesh is just a constant reminder for Paul of his weakness. Now, of course, as I'm sure you know, volumes have been written regarding what this thorn was. So here are some things I have come across. Eye problems, stuttering, epilepsy, malaria, and all of those are reasonable. Uh, Some of them are plain silly. I actually read of one commentator who said uh, that Paul's problem was baldness. Uh, that he was short of stature and bald. So I don't believe that we can say exactly what it was. The very fact that there's so many opinions out there uh, probably is kind of the point that Paul is making. He doesn't tell us intentionally. I do think, though, that the next phrase gives us one possible clue. Okay, So the next phrase says this, a messenger of Satan. So a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. That word messenger in the Greek is a word you know. It's angelos, and it's the word from which we get angel, all right? So not only can it mean angel, but it can also just mean a messenger, a human messenger or a spiritual messenger. So Paul could be speaking figuratively, so this messenger of Satan is a physical ailment. That could be the case, but it could also just be very natural that Paul is saying, literally, there is a messenger, someone, spiritual or physical, who has been sent by Satan to cause him trouble. So I think it's a, it's a possibility that the thorn in the flesh is a person. And I think this may have a little bit of merit because what we just saw in chapter 11 where Paul listed all those terrible things that have happened to him, the shipwrecks and the beatings and the imprisonments, it feels to me like physical pain was just sort of a normal way of life for Paul. On the other hand, Paul has made it clear throughout Second. Corinthians, that what has truly caused him pain has been the relational difficulties that he's had with that church. So much pain that he was depressed as he waited for Titus to come with news of how they were doing. So I just say that to say we need to know relational trouble can be just as painful as physical suffering, especially when it comes from somebody you love. All right, so I'm not going to spend any more time speculating about the nature of the thorn in the flesh. That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is this. Paul's humility was more important than his comfort, all right? And so finally, it says that this thorn in the flesh was given to harass Paul. And some versions say torment. Whatever it was, it was constant, painful suffering in Paul's life. He can't get away from it. It is ever-present and unrelenting. And it's also important to note that this thorn in the flesh is from Satan, So Satan hates Paul, Satan is harassing Paul, Satan hates you, Satan wants to harass you, just like he harassed Job, he wants to blind our eyes, he wants to murder us, his goal would be ideally that we would suffer in hell eternally, but if you are a believer, he wants to ruin your testimony and he wants to ruin your life so that you cannot enjoy God and serve others. But Martin Luther famously said, The devil is God's devil. And in his sovereignty, 
God allows Satan, get this, to harass Paul, again, probably in the same way that he allowed him to harass Job. So, so what we learn from that is this, even in his best attempts to harass the saints, God is using Satan's efforts, and I'm wording this very carefully, God is using Satan's efforts for Paul's good. Satan has no intention of keeping Paul humble. But even Satan can be used by God to accomplish that holy purpose. All right, so then we come to the request. Verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should lead me. And perhaps you've prayed. Perhaps there's something in your life right now that you are praying. Why is this happening to me? And what I think is very interesting here is that Paul is not simply resigned to it. Paul doesn't simply say, okay, I've got a thorn. I have to deal with it. Undoubtedly, this is a huge hindrance to his work. How can I be a minister to the Gentiles if I'm constantly carrying around this thorn in the flesh? And what we can learn here, I believe, is that it is not wrong to go to God and ask him for help in our troubles. And notice this too, and this is important because there's some people who think this these days. Paul doesn't bother speaking to Satan, right? You know, some people would say, you need to bind Satan. You need to cast Satan out. You need to, you need to remove Satan from your life. Paul doesn't speak to Satan. The thorn in the flesh is a messenger of Satan, but who does God, Paul, talk to? He, he, he speaks directly to the one who is sovereign over Satan. And he says, I pleaded with the Lord three times. I don't understand that to be a literal three requests. The same way that we talked about last week that the... The third heaven is the perfect heaven. I would say that those three requests is an ideal of I have prayed over and over. I have prayed completely. I have asked and asked. I have thoroughly pleaded with God to take away this thorn. And I know for some of you in this room, I know you understand that. I know you understand Paul's experience here. God, please take this suffering from my life. I can't see how under any circumstances this could be good for me. This illness, this, this debilitating pain that's coming from my illness, this infertility, this loneliness, this anxiety and depression, this cancer. God, please change this child's heart. Why won't you save this loved one? Please change my spouse's heart. Please bring me relief from this person at work who is sabotaging me. And perhaps you're here this morning and you've prayed that God would remove some besetting temptation from you. Your lust, your anger, your materialism, your discontent, your pride. And when you were saved, you've seen God deliver you from all kinds of things in your life. But there's this one sin or set of sins that you're like, why won't this go? Why do I have to fight this fight? And Paul can't understand why he needs that. Why do I have to endure this suffering? Isn't Jesus the one who has cleared the path so that I can be saved? Why won't you take this away? And if you've ever felt alone in praying those kind of prayers, you can know that for 2,000 years, going back to Paul and even before that, God's people, faithful people, have prayed those kinds of prayers because faithful believers have always been faced with things that are painful and that are tools to teach us dependence Upon God. And so we see God's response in verse 9. And he said to me, 
My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Again, bear with me. Bear with me if you're here right now and this doesn't seem comforting. God's response to Paul is no. So Paul's idea is that God would remove the thorn. God's idea is that the thorn should stay. And rather than promise to remove the thorn, God promises that he will give Paul grace as he endures. It's not wrong to ask. God may say yes. I would say it's not even wrong to say why. Not all complaining is wicked complaining. David says, with my voice I cry out to the Lord, and with my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. The children of Israel, their their complaining in the wilderness was wicked because they acted like God's God's provision was not sufficient. They blamed God for their suffering. But obviously there is a way for a believer to engage in God-honoring complaining. John Piper says it like this, Faithful complaining does not impugn God with wrong. Rather, it is an honest, groaning expression of what it's like to experience the trouble, anguish, and grief of living in this fallen world. God does not mind that kind of complaining. In fact, he encourages it. But what if God says no? And and I don't want to just throw around words like grace and weakness. I don't want to just throw those kinds of words around in the good times because we have to be able to carry an actual meaning of those words into ongoing painful trials. And if those words are just vague and indistinct for us, they will not help us when the trial comes. So first of all, what is grace? What is grace? My grace is sufficient. Grace, the theological definition, very simple, is God's undeserved favor. It is his favor, his benevolence to the unworthy. Grace is not the same as mercy. Mercy withholds punishment that is deserved. Grace gives good things that are not deserved. We do not deserve God's help in the midst of trials. But by his grace, we receive it. So we could say it this way. God's undeserved favor is sufficient for you. Paul, you're going to keep this thorn in the flesh, and in it you will find that my grace is sufficient and my power is made perfect in weakness. God's grace is real and effective. Some of you have felt this. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Because you have to be in a trial sometimes to feel it, to know that God is there. Let me break it down even further. Because I I don't want you to leave here, if there's anything I can do, still saying, I don't know if I understand that promise. So, So even further, because of God's undeserved favor for us, we can know him. It is God's undeserved favor. We looked at John 17 a few weeks ago. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So God in his grace has acted so that human beings can know him and have eternal life and depend on him and lean on him. That's grace. And it is God's grace that uses our weaknesses to expose our neediness. Because there is this lie that I am strong. The truth is I'm weak and we need to have our weaknesses exposed. We need to have our weaknesses exposed and we need it to be in a way that we can't ignore. 
Because most people live their lives believing they are strong and independent. And only by God's grace can we see that we are weak and dependent. Because God's grace is sufficient because it leads us to see what is real. Y'all, when you realize you are weak, then you can see that God is strong. That's the point. All right, so that's grace. What is weakness? And I think Paul gives us a little list here of weaknesses in verse 10. Insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Insults, when people hurt you with words. Someone lets you know what they think of you or what they like think of some part of you or that what you believe in is stupid. And people fight things that they don't understand and they, they insult one another. These days, strength is found in hurtful words. To be strong according to the flesh, right? To be strong, whether it's a fight with your wife or a fight with somebody in social media, to be strong is to get the last word, right? That's, that's strength. Are we willing to be perceived of as weak if we don't respond in kind? Am I willing, hey, am I willing to lose an argument even if I'm right? Can I bear to let someone walk away thinking they got the best of me? Jesus, though he was reviled, was re- he reviled not. Those Pharisees, think about this. Those Pharisees are spitting on him and accusing him and reviling him. And they think they're stronger than him. And they're so wrong. And it was only the cross that showed strength. That alone should teach us what it means to be strong. Hardships. So insults, hardships, distresses, any circumstance that is unpleasant or undesirable. Physical suffering that you would get rid of if you could. Because we want to feel strong. We want to be in control. And then hardship appears. And we can't handle it. When we're in the hospital room. When we're at the doctor. We just don't know. We don't know what's going on. I don't feel strong. When we're in the funeral home. I don't feel strong there. When our children feel out of control. I don't feel strong. When that bill comes in and you don't know how to pay it. You guys, it is time for us to embrace that poverty may be God's way of keeping us humble. Not having enough money doesn't necessarily mean you're not blessed. It may just be God's way of saying, I want you to depend on me. Persecutions. Literally, the word means to hunt somebody down like an animal, to chase or pursue. I think Paul's thorn in the flesh would probably somehow fit into this category. Someone who wants to harm you or humiliate you. That bully who won't go away. The tyrant who tramples your rights. The boss who keeps you down. The family member who turns from Christ. And then calamities. Just distress and anguish. It is literally, it literally means being in a narrow space and you can't find your way out. I would, I would include here acts of God that transform how we live. Fire, uh, hurricanes, war, famine. All of these things are the things that the American dream wants to eradicate, right? So we think we can come up with that pill to stop aging and a cure for cancer, and we can come up with some kind of climate initiative that's going to stop the scorching summers and end the bitter, bitter winters. If we could just sit down, right? If we could just sit down and talk, we would have peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And if we read all the books, we'll have smart, healthy, socially adjusted children. 
And these are all things that lead us to believe that we are strong. And weakness comes and it reminds us that we are not. And so Paul says he actually learned to boast in those things. The insults, the hardships, the persecutions, the calamities, those are the things that Paul boasted in. And by his grace, I know this is hard to believe, but by his grace, we can too. And so we see the result. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How can he be glad? How can he be glad to boast in his weaknesses? He says, because when that happens, it causes the power of Christ to dwell in me. It's a very interesting word. It's only used right here in the New Testament. And it's, it has the idea of a tent. It is a tent being spread over. Think of the tabernacle. Paul is saying, when I am weak, it allows Christ to spread his protective tent over me. In our weakness, Christ provides power and protection. It's only in our weakness that God provides that tent. So, back to James. God resists the proud. No shelter there. No shelter for the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. He stretches out his power over the humble. That is so foreign to our hearts. And Paul really couldn't be clearer. Brothers and sisters, this is what it means to live by faith and not by sight. This is the key to trusting God, not only when things are good, but when things are difficult. It is not necessarily a blessing to get rid of the trial, but the blessing comes in the midst of a trial. And there's ample evidence in the scriptures to prove this. Paul, I'm telling you, he is describing what is common. Luke 22, fascinating passage. The last night of his life, Peter looks, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. Peter, and you said, no, no. He says, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Note the progression here. Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Jesus prays that Peter would remain strong in the sifting. And then Peter, after you've learned what you need to learn, then you go and you strengthen others in their faith. And you tell them the reality of what God has done in you. Some of you are being sifted right now or have been sifted. And we need you to encourage us from what you've learned. Because we're all so anxious to have the power to get out of the trials, or we moan and grumble in the midst of the trials, is it possible that the church in the West today is so anemic because we lack the presence of faithful believers who are enduring thorns in the flesh and then teaching other people about the reality of grace in weakness? Maybe we need more of that. And as we learned in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, our suffering is not our own. Paul says, comfort those, comfort others as you have been comforted. Our weakness is a stewardship. It's been given to us so that we can glorify Christ and teach others. Christ 
is so glorified in a believer testifying about God's grace in the midst of trials. And I feel like that testimony is so rare in our churches. We have all been instructed to boast in our strengths. And I, I, the Western church is not paying attention to this. When I am weak, I am strong ought to be written on all of our bathroom mirrors on a sticky note to remind us. Because I think if we would truly embrace that statement, we would understand what it means to live in the power of Jesus Christ. So, the last thing I want to do this morning is leave you with just pie-in-the-sky spiritual talk. All right, So let's just try to bring this in. I hope that, that I can leave you at least desiring to know more about what is written here. All right, so first of all, a warning, all right, as we conclude. There is a false gospel. It is taking root in our churches, and it's not just in prosperity churches. It's deeply embedded in American Christianity. American Christianity has given itself over to seeking power through money and status and politics and strength. And the God of that false gospel intends to bless us by helping the faithful to acquire money and power to escape weakness so that they can enjoy comfort and leisure. That's the message of that gospel. And it's a different message. And it's a change in the true gospel. Because rather than the promise of power to endure in the midst of trials, that new message says if you're blessed, you will have the resources you need to get rid of the trials. And that's not what we find in Paul. Suffering under that gospel implies failure. And it means you haven't been faithful enough. And it means you're not blessed. And it means you're not godly enough. And when real suffering comes, and it will, there's no hope in that gospel. The good life is lost. Listen to Jesus' description of the rocky soil in Mark chapter 4. The the famous parable of the soils. These are the ones who are sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And I fear that many who sit in churches today will not remain faithful if it means jeopardizing their comfort or their status or their leisure. And so I would encourage you, search your heart today. Which do you want more? The comforts of the world, self-exaltation, uninterrupted comfort and leisure, or do you want to know God and be used by him? Jesus called that easy life, he called that the broad road. And he said that's the road that leads to destruction. And he called the path of weakness the narrow road. And that's the road that leads to life. Secondly, if you're a child of God, God will school you in weakness and humility, and it will probably be at the expense of your comfort. So Joseph in the Egyptian jail, Moses running from Pharaoh into the wilderness, Daniel and his three friends in Babylon, Job, Peter, Paul, all of our heroes of the faith endured suffering to be prepared to be used by God. I did, a, I did a study of the book of Job a few years ago. And here's the conclusion. This was the most startling conclusion that I came to at the end of that study. God brings trials to those he loves most. It's true. He wants you to depend on him. God loves you and he wants you to depend on him. And, and the wonderful plan for your life 
involves depending on him. And he's going to do whatever he can to get you to forsake every last vestige of independence. Self-exalting pride is so destructive. And it is an offense against God. And it works in opposition to everything that we were created for. And pride will send you to hell as surely as immorality and greed and murder. It would be better for you to have a thorn, stake, whatever it is, jabbing you all the time than to live your life in self-exalting pride. Will you embrace Christ's all-sufficient grace in the midst of that jabbing, pounding thorn in the flesh, whatever it is, and then strengthen us with what God teaches you? Because your suffering is a stewardship. Paul's promise of help, I can do all things through strength, through, the, through Christ who strengthens me, it has nothing to do with ball games and tests that you didn't study for. It has everything to do with enduring all of the different trials and sufferings and afflictions that come through this world. Number three, affliction ought not lead us to be unable to serve. Affliction ought not lead us to be unable to serve. Clearly, we see in this passage that these afflictions are no excuse to keep serving others and serving Christ. Paul did not take a break while he endured the thorn in the flesh. He continued working in the midst of them. Now, do not hear me. What I am not saying is do not hear that as you suffer, you need to get busier. That is not what I'm saying. What it means is that in the midst of suffering, you can continue to do the things God has entrusted you to do. Remain faithful in prayer, maintain relationships, care for little ones, strengthen others. These are all ways that he's given for you to serve him. And then finally, we need to repent of our views of strength and weakness. Because I am certain, I am certain, we are going to get to heaven and we are going to be shocked at who was strong. Who are the strongest men and women of the faith who have ever lived, who have ever ministered in churches? I think it might be those who were terribly weak and infirmed, but who prayed from their beds, who prayed from nursing homes who prayed from poor houses wherever they lived. I I believe it, it may be those who were enslaved and mistreated and separated from spouses and children who had to cry out to God and trust him for real deliverance and who in their strength will be united with great joy with those that they lost in this life. Those who lived in poverty like the widow in, in, in Mark, who gave everything for the sake of Jesus, and Jesus says she gave everything she had. I think, I think that woman in heaven, I think they're like, that's, she's, see her? She's really strong. She was really strong. Those who toiled in obscurity, caring for churches in the middle of nowhere, those who cared for sick children. I, I, Erica and I can't, I can't even imagine this, but recently, a little while ago now, we read about a, a family who has a ministry of just adopting Children who are terminally ill just to hold them and care for them while they die. I mean, those people, those people are strong. And I think these and others with weaknesses we can't even fathom. People who are so weak, people we don't, we don't even know about, but who have been giants in the faith, never exalting themselves. So as we turn to the Lord's table this morning, I have one more point to make in connection to the cross. Because I want to take us to the cross as we close. In the midst of suffering, you can sometimes feel like God has abandoned you. And sometimes the heaven seems quiet. 
and comfort seems scarce. And I think about Jesus on the cross, and we looked at this at Easter, where Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think, you know, I think, I, I talked about this, that I, I believe that's what Jesus was the most afraid of. I think that the sweating of the drops of blood in Gethsemane had to do with the fact that he was about to lose a relationship with his father. Jesus, who had only known in eternity closeness, intimacy with the God the Father and with God the Spirit, who is the most dependent man who ever lived, Jesus who said, I only do what the Father has told me to do, who was on the cross and was experiencing real separation and who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus endured hell so that we don't have to. We don't have to be separated from God. We are not ever separated from God. God has promised to never leave us or forsake us. In the middle of the last battle, I'm still in Narnia, uh, King Tyrion, the last king of Narnia, he's tied to a tree and he's bloodied and despairing. And he cries out, Aslan, 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 come and help us now. And Lewis writes, but the darkness and the cold and the quietness went on the same. And sometimes we simply have to trust in the promises. Even in the darkness, even in the quiet, even when it feels like no one is listening, that is the essence of faith. Help is there. Help will come. He will not leave you, but he is definitely teaching you. And that's, that's what we're looking for as believers. Uh, the men are going to come forward. They're going to hand out, uh, hand out a, a cup and a piece of bread. If you're a believer with us, if you have put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and that death and his resurrection, uh, then I would invite you to partake with us. Uh, just take the bread and the cup, hang on to it, and I will come back up here and I'll uh, lead us together uh, in taking that.